Greetings, my friends, and welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer. We're recording under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun. And today we continue the mission to arm humans with the tools to crush mediocrity, create mastery, and live in total wellness with my next guest, Rachel L. Nani. Rachel is a health coach, a functional coach, a real love coach. We're going to learn about all of these different aspects of her life and dive down her little rabbit hole and find out what's going on in her world and collect her story today. She has a very interesting story. So Rachel, welcome to the show. I appreciate you being on. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm super intrigued by the the titles, obviously. And I think there's some backstory behind you creating your last name, which would be super interesting as well. (laughs) And I know that you have a business that you're building in and around the wellness world. But before we jump into all of that kind of thing, I think it's always interesting to get the color and backstory around what helped someone become the person that they are today. So if you would take us back to young Rachel's life and tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up for you, I think in Florida. Yes. Yes. So I grew up in central Florida. That's two hours south of Orlando, Tampa areas, and about three hours north of Miami. This is like the orange juice capital of the world. (laughs) I know in Arizona and California, they kind of think they have a monopoly on it, but I literally grew up really close. I could smell the oranges being burned and processed. So really, So growing up in central Florida was awesome because I lived kind of this fairy tale childhood in the fact that I lived in the woods, so to speak. We had five acres, there were orange groves, and there was a wooded area. There was a stream running through there. I lived in a log cabin with cement floors, exposed logs on the inside. I grew up on a well in Florida, which basically means you're drinking mud for water. <laughs> but um, my my parents were extremely broke, <laughs> and wow. we farmed. I mean, not like industrial type farming, but we grew a lot of our own food. We had chickens. We um, slaughtered a pig and a cow if it was available. Like uh, we really. And I didn't know it at the time, but we're living off the land, so to speak, as much as possible. Right. I don't remember having like a McDonald's type meal and until I was much older. Like I must have been in junior high the first time I had like McDonald's. Really? Wow. That's amazing. And it was such a novelty. You know, back then it was like literally a dollar for a meal. Right. But it was like, nope, we can't afford that because there were five kids in my family. No. So it's like, well, no, I don't know. Were, were, that that were, was beyond. Yeah. Well, your parents living sort of like a hippie type existence or were they just like, they liked being out in the woods or what was the reason for this? My mom had a dream of living in a log cabin. And to this day, I still don't know why, (laughs) but my parents, my father indulged her and they built a log cabin that was never finished. I think she was thinking more, not along the lines of Laura Ingalls Wilder, more along like kind of what you see in the mountains, like Mm. these million dollar log cabins. But what she got was a much cheaper down home country version. It was more of the Laurel Ingalls Wilder, Laura Ingalls Wilder version. I was definitely, I felt like her. I loved watching that show and kind of, it resonated with me that I was stuck on this farm and I just got to figure things out kind of thing. We didn't have an outhouse, but it was pretty close. Wow. That's amazing. So were you, were you, were you, and you said that this was fantastic. So you were loving this, you were enjoying this. Yeah. Well, 
you don't know what you don't know, right? I didn't realize that every kid wasn't growing up this way until you get to about the age of 10. When you live out in the country, it's not like you run to the neighbor's house. There were there were five acres between me and the neighbor's house. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know. And everybody else that lived out in that part of the county had the exact same situation. So I didn't know that anybody lived any differently than that. Mm, my... Um, My family didn't really live anywhere close. So I wasn't going to cousins' houses or anything like that. So when I did become older, you know, in elementary school, probably around nine or 10, and I started having play dates, so to speak, with other kids. And I realized, huh, oh, they have fenced backyards that look into other backyards and they have air conditioning in your house. (laughs) That's a novel idea. And carpet. We didn't have any of that. Oh, and you don't have a big garden out back? You eat from the gas station? Like, there were so many things, I think, that I was just like, huh, this is weird, but it's kind of cool. You know how you always want what you don't have. (laughs) Yeah, you lost me when you said no air conditioning in Central Florida. I mean, come on now. I grew up in Georgia, so I know a little bit about the heat and humidity that happens down in that area. That had to be miserable in the summertime. Uh, Oh, it it was sheer misery. Like, it was part of growing up broke, right? Like, I'm telling you, there was there wasn't air conditioning. I would like get a sheet wet and then lay it on my body at night with the window open. Wow. Like that, that's how I went to bed. Wow. It was, (laughs) I had to imagine that I was just camping out every day. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this was just a few decades ago. (laughs) I know. We're not talking about like a hundred years ago. That's amazing. It's not a hundred years ago. And it was, and it was in this first world country. Yes. Wow. Wow. That's interesting. That's interesting. So you said you had uh, quite a few brothers and sisters. Did they enjoy uh, that sort of lifestyle as well or no? Um, I don't think any of us really enjoyed it. We just endured it because there was mm. no other option. Right. We, I was um, quite a tomboy. And so I played outside a lot when you have five acres to play and it's all wooded. I mean, growing up in Georgia, you know, there's trees everywhere. It's green mm-hmm. almost year round. Uh, there's so many places to wander. And I mean, we had this wooded area just in the backyard, basically, that was where we built forts out of nothing, just old tree branches. And we had vines that grew from the trees. We'd swing from vines and we'd dig big holes and act like they were moats to a castle and have sword fights, you know, with sticks. And our imaginations were able to just go wild. You're taking me back, man. That was the picturesque. (laughs) <laughs> it, it was a good thing. I look at it with fond memories now instead of like, what the crap, right. which is where I was in, you know, the later teenage years and early twenties. Like that was the worst ever. And now I'm like, Oh yeah. I wish my kids had that. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of which, right? Like now that you, you had that experience, of course, and with your children, I'm assuming they've had a, they've lived, they've lived a very different life to this point. You know, when, when you compare and contrast the two, do you see any advantages to growing up the way that you grew up or no? I see great advantages to the way that I grew up. There, there are some downsides for sure. Raising children is hard. It's not for the faint of heart. And When you have a big open space where you feel safe, where they can just roam and they can be creative instead of sitting in front of the TV or having a device in their hand, man, man, do I wish that I could have that back. 
Oh yeah, for but, sure. Um, where I live now, that's, that's hard. You get about an acre mm-hmm. and my kids have that, but, um, yeah, you don't get much more if you want to live near the city and that's kind of where we're at because that's where you do business. Yeah. And even that's a lot in a lot of cities. I mean, in Phoenix, you know, it you is. get quarter acres or eighth acre lots, you know, these tiny little places and that's it. That's all you have. And it's funny mm-hmm. that you're, you mentioned that we, uh, the wife and I, we went on a walk this morning down to the local park, which is 63 acres. And of course, with everything going on with COVID right now, everyone is, you know, staying home or what have you. And the park was basically empty. There was one family mm-hmm. there, uh, a father, a mother, and then a child. And the child was probably four or five years old. And the child was wanting to run around, you know, and the mm-hmm. child ran off like, like 10, 15 feet in front of the mom. And the mom just chased him down and brought him back. And I was like, lady. <laughs> There's no one here. Let the kid run. I, I see like parents, like she's just like hovering over this poor little boy. And I was like, man, that's that. I feel sorry for that kid. Do you see a lot of that, oh. you know, with kids nowadays, like just parents hovering over their children, not letting them just, yes. just run. Yeah. I, helicopter parents, literally like wow. right over them. It's, it's a weird world. I think a part of me kind of does that because you get the peer pressure to do it. Um, and living in the city is a lot different and scarier than living in the country. But as a child growing up, my mom literally said, get outside and don't come back till dinner. Mm-hmm. Like she didn't know or probably care where we were for the space of 10 hours right, right. <laughs> or maybe more. And it was like, come back if you're hungry, but I'll serve it to you on the porch kind of thing because you're, <laughs> you're, and literally, it's a good thing we didn't have neighbors because you had to strip down on the porch before you could walk inside. <laughs> that's great. That, that's just how it went. <laughs> that sounds very familiar. I, I, I mean, I have to say, like my both my parents came from uh, rural farms in in Georgia, and my mom was the same way. She would actually lock us out of the house. You know, mm-hmm. she was, "You're not coming in and out of the house all day." Blah blah blah. You know, kind of a thing. Drink out of the yep. water hose, kind of a thing. And man, those days were, those days are non-existent now. I don't see any kids with very much autonomy. And I'm wondering if, like, if you look at that now, I mean, how self-sufficient are you? Like, how do you go through your days in terms of like dealing with adversity or dealing with challenge or issues? Do you find yourself pretty well able to handle it and not freaking out about much or, or no? I mean, I think a lot of that comes from that sort of experience of being able to have that autonomy on your own. Mm-hmm. Free as a bird kind of living. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I I think I'm definitely different from a lot of people and each challenge in life kind of changes you. And I think I've gone up and down on that roller coaster of, am I worrying? Am I not worrying enough? Am I worrying too much? You know, as a parent or when you become a parent for the first time, you feel like this person is breakable and losable and you don't know how to do that. It's your first experience with it. And you have to kind of stumble and fall and understand how to do that. Um, the very first time my oldest who is now 14 and a half wandered into the street, I ran out and spanked him for running into the street. (laughs) And then I sat on the curb and cried myself to death almost like, what did I just do? I, it was, I didn't even know I was going to be a spanker, first of all. And he was like 18 months old. It wasn't like a huge, but I just like whacked his bum really hard. And first of all, of course, I got a spanking. That's the generation I grew up in, right? Right. Go get a switch. We're going to give you a whooping. Yeah, pick your own, right? um, 
<laughs> exactly. And pull down your pants because it's going to be on that raw behind. <laughs> so, but when you automatically do something because of your conditioning, it really strikes you hard if you're open enough to realize it. And I did it and I was just like, what did I just do? Oh my gosh. I literally, it makes me want to cry now. I, I just grabbed him and sat there on the curb, just bawling my eyes out. Like, mm. oh my gosh, I did become my mother. What just happened? Oh, no. I'm not even accustomed to this situation, but that was my first inkling is that was out of my control. So I need to hit. Mm. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing how those early programs take root in our in our subconscious, right? And then they manifest themselves yeah. when those situations arise. You know, obviously exactly. you had the awareness to recognize that in the moment, but you know, when you extrapolate that out into other areas of life, how have you dealt with some of those things that your parents gave you when you were growing up? Well, a lot of it has actually built the business that I have today mm. is really understanding that as the natural man, right? We all have the natural man in us. We want to control. That's why we have kings. That's why we have wars. That's why we have victories. And that's why we had Hitler. (laughs) We want to control, but the secret is learning how to control yourself so that you don't control others. Mm -hmm. And I've really built a practice around doing that. And that's kind of what I call being a real love coach, because you have to have real love for yourself to be able to control yourself, right? That is something that you have to adopt and practice daily. Right, right. Now, you said earlier that, you know, your parents weren't necessarily happy together. And I'm assuming you've come to a lot of these realizations and a lot of these sort of revelations, you know, as you've uh, evolved into a young adult and had your own children and that sort of thing. But, you know, mm-hmm. one of the things that you mentioned that is a passion of yours is health, obviously wellness, you know, but when we spoke um, off mic in the pre-interview, you mentioned that you weren't necessarily a healthy child, you know, um, take us back to that moment. What was going on for you when you were coming up and maybe not experiencing the health that you thought, you know, was available to you? Right. So there was a lot of stress in my house because my parents weren't happy. And anybody that grew up in that situation or is in that situation currently, I'm sure that resonates. It's it's a constant elephant on your shoulders, in the room, wherever. And it, it kind of just burrows down deep in you. And it's festering in your gut is the best way to put it, I think. And that was a definite issue for me as a child that we we were kicked out of the house to go play all day, but we wanted to be out of the house because it was constant contention. Mm. So I didn't realize it as a kid, as most kids don't, but that it was giving me a constant bellyache every day. I am um, third born child, which if you know anything about the theory of constellations, there's a whole, like you can map the stars to the day you were born. And that plays a role in when you were born into your family. If you're a boy or a girl, what number you are, all of these things, right? No, you, I don't, I don't know that stuff. So you gotta, you're gonna have to fill me in here. So, so give me your, <laughs> give me your dates well, and that, stuff here. <laughs> um, so I'm a Pisces and I don't, I know just enough to get in trouble about this stuff because I don't want to take anyone down the path. I just think it's interesting that 
there, there is a method to all this sadness kind of like when you think about well, where did horoscopes come from and why do we map this and why are all the people that are born within a 30 day period have very similar personalities, mm-hmm. you know, or have certain characteristics. And so I've just looked in it into it enough to understand this is a real thing because think about it. The ocean is coming in and out. The tide is affected by the moon. If we didn't have the moon, holy cow, our world would almost cease to exist. Right. And along with the sun, like we need all of these things. Our souls also need those guiding stars. And I think that's where it starts here is when you have this place, right? You were born in a hospital or a home or maybe even on the side of the road with some people didn't make it there in time. But the stars were all the same. It doesn't matter what was happening. It was like you were meant to be in this time. Am I making any sense? Like, <laughs> does that resonate with you at all? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got some questions though. So like when you're talking about soul, <laughs> you know, what do you mean by soul? You know, like uh, um, a lot of people, so, I think, will interpret interpret that different ways. Right. So my interpretation is that we are a spirit. We are a spiritual being that's being housed in a physical body. And so the spiritual being inside of us is what I call soul, because I believe it's the brain to our spirit or to our physical body. Our mm. spiritual body is the brain to our physical body. I'm right. With you. I'm with you. We need both of them to exist on this planet. Um, but that's, that's what I believe that, that no matter what you believe deity is, or if you've lived 12 lives before this, or you have a million lives to live after this, I believe that there are degrees of lives, right. whatever that looks like. Right. Um, I don't know what it looks like. I'm not even going to try to tell anyone what that should look like. I believe for myself that my soul has been learning for eons mm. and I, Again, I don't know what that looks like or what I've actually learned, but I know that some of us come to this earth. We're born with more intelligence than others. Mm. Why is that? Right. Right. That's not like a DNA thing. That's a soul thing. Sure. Where did you learn that intelligence? Sure. So (laughs) So are you saying that? That's where I'm saying that. So you're, so what I'm taking from that is that in terms of, of the Pisces thing with the horoscopes, which I'm a Pisces as well, by the way. Um, Oh, awesome. The, so you're saying that being born at a certain time with the stars of the firmament being what it is that you're sort of anchored to that experience. You're anchored to that place in time. And that somehow has an effect on how you show up in the world or am I way off? Yes. Not that it completely defines you, but that it does make up some of the characteristics that you possess. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Very cool. Because I believe that we still choose our own destiny. I see. So if you, you know, in in this moment, like if you're looking at yourself and you're saying, well, I am a Pisces and I was born on this date and and this and this and this, like what about the horoscope do you find is true for you? Well, I know as a Pisces that I have a pretty red personality, right? (laughs) I have a red personality, but I'm also a very, very blue personality in the fact that all I want to do is love and care for people. And that is not necessarily a Pisces thing that moves into the theory of constellations that got us to the horoscope part. The theory of constellations says 
based on your family dynamic, right? Think about the constellations are all made up of basic star families, right? Mm -hmm. They're in groupings that make pictures that they correlate back to stories, Mm -hmm. which that is a family. (laughs) So, um, I was born third child, but I was actually raised as second child and actually took first child position. And so I have all of these, and lots of people have this where it's like, um, mom had a child with first husband and then she got remarried to someone else and had several more children. So the first child of the second marriage plays a weird role because they're second child to mom, but first child to dad kind of thing. Right. Right. And so you play several different roles in your family spiritually. Oh, I see. If that makes sense. So the one, two, three is you're referring to your different ways of showing up in the family dynamic. Yes. So Mm. it's almost like I have, um, multi-personality disorder almost. <laughs> I don't, but you know, and I make fun of it because I think everyone should have different personalities. You sure. shouldn't just be the one person. You should be able to be multi-dimensional and show all those different sides just as long as you're controlling them because we all have the shadow and the light within us, right? Right, right, yeah. I mean, so. in terms of like behavior matrices, you know, if it, it's uh, some of this stuff would map over and, you know, you could be in one quadrant or another, but the best place to be is in the middle so that you can pick mm-hmm. from any quadrant, right? It's kind of what I'm taking from that. Correct. But give me the, give me the breakdown on this one, two, three thing. I mean, I'm super intrigued. I haven't heard this before. So educate me a little <laughs> bit. The third child, second child, first child, what are those traits? How do they show up or how did they show up in your life when you were a, a Well, a they're lady? all completely different and I haven't done a ton of research for other people. I've just done it for me specifically sure. <laughs> just because I'm like, I'm trying to dissect me because you can't really help anyone else until you've really looked at yourself and gone through what you expect them to go through. Right. Right. Well, that's what's interesting so, about it because I'm sure that you've done a deep dive on you. And then of course the next step to mastery is teaching it to other people. So I'm just going to put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> And see what I can do. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Um, So first child is typically, uh, think about, oh, in biblical times, right? They're the one that inherits dad's land. They're the one that that takes over the business. They're the one that gets everything. They're supposed to be the strongest. And by parental nature, we expect more out of our first children. And it's very true in my life. I know it's very true in a lot of people that I know that have children. Their oldest takes on a higher role because it's like, well, heavens to Betsy, I have all these little kids. I need someone to be helping. The oldest is the only one capable. You just expect more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, that is kind of the role of the first one. The second one is usually more charismatic and more open. The first one's closed and usually very studious and a listener to obedience. Um, The second one, usually not so obedient (laughs) and um, more curious. If, um, yeah, more of that. I could could go on for a while, but let's not for time's sake. And third one is um, the funny one. So like class clowns are typically a third child Mm. and think about like third child, 
lots of times can be considered a middle child because it's like, oh, they're a third wheel. And so it's this, you can look at it from a bunch of different angles, but if you put 10 families up towards this test, you'd find out like, oh yeah, first child always follows that. Second child always follows that. (laughs) Third child. And there's a little wiggle room, but it's within some bounds. Right. So me being um, who I was, (laughs) who I still am, the way I was raised, I took on these multi personalities doing that. I was definitely the class clown. I was third born child. I was more curious, didn't want to follow the rules. I definitely wanted to be outside the box. Anyone was trying to put me in, but my older sister had a hard time taking first role um, so my older sister was born and then there was a full term stillbirth child and then there was me. Mm, okay. So I took second and third all by myself and then first child, my sister, because she wasn't, she wasn't taking the role, I guess, seriously, not that any kid does, but I felt like, well, something needs to be done here and not even knowing I just automatically took over her spot (laughs) and I became like telling all of my other siblings what to do. And I became mom basically not remember, not remember. I haven't told you yet, but my mom, (laughs) my mom was severely depressed. She had five kids in, well, she gave birth to six children in, I think it was 14 years. Okay. And so it's not what she wanted. When she got married, she was getting married to get away from her mom Mm -hmm. and to have money because she grew up poor and not liking her own mother. So she thought, okay, I'm going to make the best of this, I'm sure. And she planned on having two kids, a boy and a girl. So she had a girl and then she got pregnant with a boy and he died right at the last minute, literally. And depression set in right there. And that was... That was the end of my mother. When that baby died before I was born, that was the end. And um, I asked her recently in the last couple of years, you know, will you will you tell me about this time in your life? And um, she resisted at first. <laughs> but I'm like, I, I think I need to know this for me because a lot of the way that you feel as a mother when you have a baby in utero, when you're actually pregnant, they can feel everything that you feel. Mm-hmm. They inherit so much of you. And so I told her, I said, I think I inherited a lot of what you felt and what you were going through during that time period. And I would just love to hear it. Mm-hmm. So it, it took her a little while but she actually wrote it out for me and it summarized was it broke her. She was utterly depressed. And, um, when she found out she was pregnant with me only, I think it was nine months later after this baby died that she found out she was pregnant with me. Um, she hit another like step in depression because the fear set in that it would happen again. But that fear when you're pregnant, again, translates into the fetus. And that fetus knows your fear. And so therefore, the fetus is fearful. Mm. So 
I think I lived out a lot of anxiousness and fear that my mother felt. And I felt it my entire life. I, this is why I reached out to her because I was like, what is going on in my life? I need to figure this out. Right. Um, right. And so understanding um, the stars and the alignment of when I was born and trying to fit all these pieces together because it's kind of like my practice. This is why I'm, I kind of go in every different direction because I don't believe there's a catch all. Mm -hmm. There's not one thing that's going to make everyone happy. There's not one thing that's going to make everyone healthy. Right. There's not just one thing. We're all so multidimensional that we need to have a smorgasbord of options. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what I was doing. I was on my own journey going through that buffet of, oh gosh, this is an element to what makes me whole. Mm, I see. And this is, are you referring to, uh, you did this when you were younger or you did this when you got a little older and started getting so into the... I, I have been doing this, um, I started this more like spiritual looking journey about 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's been about 10 years where I started to deep dive. And of course, think about deep diving, right? If you don't know anything about the water, you go to the beach and you just stick your toes in <laughs> and then you're like, okay, I could get used to this. Let me just sit here for a minute. Sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> and eventually it led to me like just, all right, let's go 60 feet under with an oxygen tank because I want to really understand what's going on here. Mm -hmm. So over 10 years, that's what has happened. So what was it that prompted you to start that journey? Was it this conversation that you had with your mom or did that come much later? That came much later. So this conversation I had with my mom actually happened about three years ago. Okay. So what prompted me is I have always been a spiritual person. I actually grew up Mormon in central Florida, which means you're, you're pretty much the only Mormon that, you know, right, right, yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, Mormonism is, I think taken different by everyone. It's very interesting. Um, but it, it was the chosen religion by my parents and that's how I grew up. And so I was what I called a spiritual person. Um, instead of being religious, I always told people I was spiritual. And when I was pregnant with my second baby, it's a girl, I found myself in a very similar position, not just like my mom's issue, but um, I was in a marriage that was very volatile and scary for me. Really? And I... I was looking for answers on what I should be doing in my life. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, I was just searching everywhere and I had that baby and she, she internalized everything that I was feeling during that pregnancy, all the fear, all the emotion. And that baby, I didn't put down for a year of her life. She slept on me. She was attached to me literally for 24 seven for over a year. Really? <laughs> and it was hard because I think she could feel, and I know she could feel, um, my emotion. She knew what was going on. So 
moving forward, I knew I needed help. I mean, I knew I needed help while I was pregnant, but after when, I mean, I couldn't even put her down. You'd think, oh, we'll just let her cry it out. After a week of that and she won't go to sleep, you're like, kill me now. I can't put her down. It's making both of us miserable. Right. (laughs) So um, I started looking outside of myself for help. And I actually met a friend when that baby was about, oh, gosh, only a couple months old. Um, It was a surprise friend who came to buy a house from me and we became great friends. She didn't end up buying a house, but we became great friends. And a couple months later, she said, Rachel, I think you should read this book. And she handed it to me and it was called Feelings Buried Alive Never Die. And that book, I don't think it's the best book on the planet, but that book changed my life because it changed the direction in which I was thinking. I see. And that book tells a lot about generational scripts and plagues and issues of basically the basis of that book is all of your ancestors have a story. Mm -hmm. And if they didn't process their story or process their issues, or if something happened to them or unfinished business, basically, right? Right. Lots of times in movies, especially we want to think of it as unfinished business. If they had any unfinished business, we now carry that as their prosperity. Right. And what that book did for me is open that up to, oh, okay, maybe I didn't bring all this on myself. Maybe it wasn't my choices. Maybe it's just my duty to process this, so to speak, for the generations before me and to really understand, oh, that's what they went through. And all I have to do is recognize their story. And sometimes I don't even have to know their story. Right, right. But to just know that that's, that's an avenue. And that, that took me down a rabbit hole. That was getting my toes wet. Well, that's, um, that's, that's really intriguing. I haven't heard of this book, and I've read, I don't know, thousands of personal development books over the, over, <laughs> over the course of my life. And this one actually sounds very intriguing. I'm wondering if you remember at the time reading the book, if you remember what programs or stories in, in your terminology it started to uncover for you. What were you carrying from these previous generations that you needed to deal with? Um, you know what? I, I don't remember specific stories to share with you. What I do remember is some of the stories in the book. Um, the author tells about a, a murder that happened. A, a, I think it was a grandfather. This has been, remember, over 10 years ago. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I haven't gone back and read that book. Um, there was a murder that happened. And that's unfinished business, right? Right. That he wasn't, um, the man that killed another man was not prosecuted. He didn't go to jail. And, um, the generations after that were, were paying the price for that. And I don't remember exactly how they were paying the price, but I remember this overwhelming feeling that these, these ancestors of this man felt the guilt and shame that went along with actually murdering someone, right? So um, them getting to a place where 
they could release that. And the release, she talks about it in the book, is basically a prayer that you offer. And she has lots of different, like, I would call them almost like seances, like Mm -hmm. Hail Marys. You say a certain little thing and basically ask for that energy around that specific event to be released. I see. I see. So how much of this, like, if you look at it, you know, as a, as an outsider looking in, say, for example, and you come at it from more of a, like a logical standpoint instead of the energetic standpoint, like, you know, how much of what maybe your child was feeling or what the person in the book was feeling, do you feel like might be the projection of the person in that moment? You know, like when you walk into a room and someone has an issue that they're dealing with, you can feel it. You know, if you have any sort of, um, you know, empathy toward other people, you can just feel the mood that they're in. You can feel the energy that they're projecting and you can't help but pick that up, especially if you're, you know, younger and you don't really know how to deal with it or deal with your own emotions or have mastery of self yet. You know, do you feel like mm-hmm. that could be a factor in how people show up when they're in, in those places? I mean, I can imagine that someone whose family <laughs> is known for murder, you know, would probably feel guilty every time they walked into town. You know what I mean? Mhm. Right. No, I think there's a a big part of that happening. Um I I was that kid that I would feel all of those emotions. I would it's almost like, you know, when you're watching a movie and you feel like you're the character of the movie, you can mm-hmm. feel those emotions and you're, I mean, no one's tearing you apart from that character. You are inside their mind. You're feeling everything that they feel. That's how I felt as a kid intermingling with other people. And I didn't, I didn't know how to manage that. I didn't even realize it was all happening. I think I was just used to it. And, um, I think a lot of that goes back to when we were talking earlier off the record that I was a sickly person. That was a physical and an emotional sickness that I was carrying around because it's like I would adopt the energy of other people because I could feel it so real. Oh, so you're and, so you're thinking that you were ill partly because you were taking on other people's bullshit, basically, their, their emotions mm-hmm. and that sort of thing? <laughs> Yes, that's uh, that's why I got called a hypercontract because it was like I didn't even realize the what I was feeling. It was like I was just constantly telling people, "Oh, I feel this way," when it wasn't. It wasn't actually what I physically felt. It's like I was I was projecting what other people were feeling, but out mm. of my mouth. I see. I see. So I mean, that's the best way I can describe it because I never remember feeling that specific way. I just remember people asking me in-depth questions, but there was no rhyme or reason to it. Like, I can't tell you why I feel this way. I just feel this way. So like, Oh yeah, that hurts. There's no reason why that hurts, but it hurts. (laughs) So you were having physical pain, but there was no evidence that there should be physical pain. Am I hearing that correctly? Oh, I see. Wow. Yeah. So did you have to spend much time you know, dealing with this from like a medical perspective or was it not that serious? Um, there were a couple times, yeah, in my life that I think it, it actually started affecting me physically, my actual physical body. And when I was about uh, eight or nine, it was between those two ages. Um, I spent a lot of time in the hospital and I was a bedwetter and that has a whole nother energy attachment to it too. But 
I was a bedwetter and what happened one summer is I doubled over while we were at the beach with severe lower back pain. And my parents just thought, oh, she's got kidney stones or something. They took me to the hospital. I didn't have any kidney stones. I didn't have a bladder infection. I didn't really have anything. They poked and prodded me, ran all the tests, x-rays, CAT scans, everything. And there was nothing. Hmm. There was absolutely nothing wrong with me. Like healthy as a freaking horse. Hmm. Nothing wrong with you. But I spent weeks in the hospital. Really? Them trying to figure out what was wrong with me. Um, and then again, when I was a pretty young teenager, they, um, I had all the symptoms of ovarian cysts and maybe ovarian cancer at like age 15, 16. And they were positive it was that. They put me on birth control. They gave me all sorts of pills. And when they went in and looked, there was absolutely zero wrong with me. Really? Nothing. Wow. Yeah. So, so, so I'm not sure what it really was, but. <laughs> did it eventually just subside or, or how did you end up yeah, dealing with it? It did. Just, both of them. Really? Wow. Both of them just, it's, it's almost like as soon as you investigate it and realize it's not something that you can give weight to, it went away. Hmm. So that's interesting. And, yeah. Was it like, almost like, I mean, I'm trying to equate this with what you were talking about earlier along the energy piece, you know, is it, was it, mm -hmm. was it something that you acknowledged and, and kind of released from a psychological standpoint or, mm -hmm. or no? Right. And who knows if we'll ever know, but it's just interesting how the journey of your life leads you down all different paths. And sometimes there is no rhyme or reason. There right. is no explanation for what's going on. Yeah. You it's... just keep going down your path. No. That was just a bump in the road. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You definitely have to keep going. Uh, life is going to throw you as many curveballs as it can possibly come up with. That's for sure. <laughs> So, yeah, I yeah, know uh, one of the things that we talked about um, that was impactful for you, I know that uh, I think your your parents, they eventually split up, right? They did. When I was 14, they split. And then you you said something yeah. that, that struck me because you, you used the word that's uncommon. You said you became a vagabond at 14. What did you mean by that? <laughs> um, my mom, so there were five kids. My mom left when I was 14, so I was living in Central Florida, and my mom moved to Missouri with the two youngest children, which were four and eight. And then my older sister went to college, and my younger brother went and lived with a friend, and I stayed with my dad. And this all happened, like, my mom left, right? And my sister left to college, like, the same day. All this happened in one day. It's like, oh, we're a family of seven, and all of a sudden, it's me and my dad. Wow. And, um, again, I told you my parents had zero money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I don't even think that the bills were getting paid. Our house was, I think our house actually sold in the divorce for, um, $60,000, five acres, a probably 4,000 square foot house for $60,000. Like, <laughs> I'm just like, wow, yeah. that, that tells you like, it, it was just like nothing is a shack in the middle of the woods, basically. Right, right. So, um, I, my dad, so my mom left in June 
on my parents' 20th wedding anniversary. And my dad had a heart attack within a couple months. I couldn't tell you what day it was. I think it was like the end of August. Mm-hmm. And I became all on my own in that single moment. It was a Sunday morning. He had a heart attack. My dad is an only child to a mother who is 40 years older than him. And he was almost 40 years older than me. And so my grandma's 80 and my dad is over. Well, he's how old am I? He's in his almost 60. Mm-hmm. No. Um, how old would he be? How old was I? <laughs> my grandma, <laughs> I can't even do the math, but everyone's old, right? My dad's had a heart attack. (laughs) I'm 14. (laughs) My grandma's old and um, can't drive, can't take care of herself. She lives on her own, but we do a lot of things for her. And my dad is her sole caretaker. So I become my dad's caretaker and my grandma's caretaker at 14. I live out in the boondocks. They come and get my dad by ambulance and they take him to a hospital. Remember, I live in a tiny little town. The hospital they take him to is two hours north, the Tampa General. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm 14. I have no groceries. I have keys to a car. I don't really have any money. I don't have anything. In that moment, I have to decide what to do. So I actually get in the car at 14. I knew how to drive. My dad taught me how to drive when I was 11. It was a stick shift too. And I drove two hours north on main highways to Temple General. I do not know how I found it without a smartphone, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> I have no clue how I got there. You had to read the <laughs> signs, intervention. Man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Back then we knew how to get places. That's it. Um, so I sat there and talked to my dad. I mean, he was coherent, but they kept him for a few weeks. And, um, I mean, we just had a short chat. I don't even remember everything that was said, but basically it was like, go take care of your grandma. Um, good luck. <laughs> I mean, it was, there was, there was no guidance. There was no help. There was, there was nobody. Wow. So I drove home, went, talked to my grandma, told her what was happening. Um, and she had money. And so she gave me money. I would get groceries. I, there was no room to live with her. She lived in a tiny little studio apartment. Um, so I went back home. I took care of myself. I got a job. I went to school. I did, I did all the normal things just all on my own. Right. And within a couple months after that, the house was going to be sold. And so we moved out of the house into town, which was going to be better for everyone because then I could access places easier than need a car. And, um, I got another job and I just, I, I ended up on couches and in twin size beds with friends and just moving everywhere, wherever someone would accept me. I wore other people's clothes. I ate other people's food. I literally was just this little nomad. (laughs) That's amazing. So, and you're 14 at this time. That's crazy. 14. Yeah. And that, that continued until I graduated high school. So pretty much all through high school. That's how I lived. So all through high school, you were living on couch, you're couch surfing from person to person, like borrowed clothes, other people's food. That's insane. And Mm -hmm. what happened with your father? Did he make it out of the hospital? Okay. And come back into your life at all? Or what, what happened with that? Yes. 
he came out a couple weeks later, came home, um, started eating better, less stress, you know, all the normal heart attack type things. Right. And, um, but where he, he chose to move to this little townhouse and it wasn't in the best part of town. <laughs> and, uh, at the very beginning of living there, I lived there with him for a couple months, but then the girl next door had a couple kids and a boyfriend living with her and the boyfriend and her had a fight. She kicked him out and he was just like stewing outside, I guess. And my dad is like too friendly. He's mm -hmm. always been too friendly right. and, um, invited this man to live with us. This man, we don't know to live with him and his teenage daughter. Wow. Yeah. So he was sleeping on the couch. There was no room in our place. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh. So I decided I didn't like that situation so much and that I wasn't going to be there any longer. So I didn't, I left all of my stuff there, but, um, I started, I, I mean, I didn't come home for weeks at a time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I can imagine not. That's doesn't sound like the safest situation either, especially for no, a teenage girl. It wasn't. Then. No, he ended up stealing from us and like it was the worst kind of situation and my dad knowingly chose it like I'm just like what this yeah, is not that, smart nanny <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand that some of these decisions that you hear like that that where parents make when when they, you knowingly are endangering your child or after especially after you help someone and then they kind of screw you over and you keep putting up with mm -hmm. it I've never understood that mm -hmm. I'm assuming you learned that yeah. lesson though <laughs> going into a, a you know, motherhood yourself we, <laughs> we all kind of make choices throughout the way and we learn and grow with them. But I have definitely not made a choice like that. <laughs> I will keep choosing not to make those kind of choices. Right. Well, at some point along your story, I know that, um, you had mentioned that your father was, uh, like a good, was a, was a health food guy, a health food fanatic. And I know that at some point you got into the fitness world. Was this sort of prompt? Did this sort of prompt that or was this before that? So growing up, kind of living off the land, um, I, I knew how to eat healthy. I just didn't realize what I was doing, right? No kid really knows what's happening. My parents didn't talk about it. It was just like, this is what we have to do. Mm -hmm. There wasn't, I think it's kind of a generational thing is, um, it, it, it's not just a woman thing. It was kind of a kid thing. You're better be seen than heard. And it's just like, stop bugging me. Don't stop talking. Like, it was more that the kids were an annoyance than like a blessing. Right. So I learned to not ask a lot of questions and, um, just do what you're told long enough that you can just get out because I definitely had those parents who, I mean, I slept at the dinner table some nights because I wouldn't finish my dinner. And then I was forced <laughs> to eat my dinner for breakfast still at the dinner table. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the kind of situation where I'm like, uh, no. Oh, man. <laughs> so, there were some good and bad with all of that, right? It was all coupled with, there are kids starving in Africa. Well, right. Send it to Africa, I would tell them. Send <laughs> it there. I don't want it. Right. Um, so moving forward, I started working so much as a young person. I mean, I worked in restaurants. I didn't like the food that was being served. When you, when you grow up accustomed to certain type of food and you start eating other food, it starts making you sick when you're eating kind of commercialized food. And I realized that I was getting sick. I didn't feel well. 
And um, my friend at the time that was in high school with me, her mom had just finished becoming a personal trainer and opened a gym in this tiny little town, which was quite the novelty because I went to a county high school. Like our city was a couple square blocks, it seemed. I mean, maybe a mile, there was a flashing stoplight in town. Like there was nothing. And she's opening up a gym. (laughs) So I was, I was very intrigued. And it started out as, oh, Rachel, you want a job? Do you want to just sit at the desk? Because she had um, tanning beds. That's when tanning beds were super popular, right? In the 90s. And why don't you just man the tanning beds till nine or 10 o'clock at night? I'll just pay you to do that. Great. And you can tan for free and, you know, you have access to the gym. Well, I did that for a couple months and then it moved into, well, do you want to start teaching aerobics? You know, I need someone to teach aerobics. You don't have to be certified for that. You want to teach aerobics? Yeah. I was a cheerleader and I did a, a lot of movement type things. And so I just watched her and took her classes It didn't take very long and I knew how to teach my own class. So I started doing that. I would talk to her about training. I would intermix with the clients. Like I really kind of engulfed myself in, wow, this is, this is kind of a cool world that I'm in now. And, um, I started working out more and then I, um, actually at high school, don't really know why they did this, but in high school they had a weightlifting team and they really wanted a girls team and, my cheerleading coach was like, all of you are going to do the weightlifting team. And we're like, wait, what? (laughs) But it was, it was the best thing ever. It was like, you don't get a choice. We need a girls weightlifting team. And I can tell you, you know, like, I'm just going to tell you that you're doing it. So we did it as part of like our training and our practice. And I ended up winning every single time I would win. And so I was like, all right, this is pretty cool. I could do this. (laughs) and um, that just kind of morphed into learning more and more and more about the body. Mm -hmm. I was really focused on the body and what a body should look like, of course, when you're kind of in that world, you are. Um, And then fast forward to graduating high school, you kind of get out of that mode. I definitely went through a stage of, I don't really care about health. I mean, that's kind of like the, the freshman mentality. You're just like in survival mode. I don't have my parents anymore. Not that I had any, but you know what I mean? You know, the yeah, freshman mode. Absolutely. I, um, I did not end up at college because I had taken, uh, more than a half a year of college credit in high school. And so I, I was going to skip first, some sem- first semester and second semester. I was going to skip my freshman year cause I'd already done it. And, um, that was the worst possible thing because I got in a lot of trouble And what it resulted in is me moving to Utah after being involved in a house fire. So why, why did that prompt you uh, to get in so much trouble? And you you said (laughs) that was the reason you lost me there. I didn't have, I didn't have a purpose, Ah, you know, all uh, when I was, and that's all I can equate it to. I I couldn't really put words to it before, but now at almost 40, I can say, you know what? As a child, I always had a purpose. Like my mom's like, this is, you have a chore list a mile long. I always called myself Cinderella and (laughs) you have to be outside. And I was very dramatic even as a kid. (laughs) And, um, and it was, it was, it was different. I always had a purpose of doing something. And by the time I was 14, I had to be an adult. And so I felt like I had worked so hard the last four to five years 
like I already adulted. I just want to take the year off. I have a little bit of money in the bank. It wasn't anything, but to an 18 year old, you feel like you're rich, right? If you have 50 bucks. That's right. So, um, I had a job, I had an apartment. I had moved an hour North of where I grew up with my best friend. And I just felt like, man, the world is at my feet. I've got this. <laughs> that was the wrong kind of thinking. You had it all figured out, not. man. That's awesome. <laughs> oh my God. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Never think that you got it all figured out because that, oh, life will throw you a curveball. And um, I made some very bad choices with some bad people and some bad substance. It was just alcohol, nothing bad. It was bad, but 18 and drinking is never a good thing. Could have been worse. I, um, I was beyond drunk and trying to cook, um, the morning after a horrible party. And, um, that, that was a very bad decision. The, what I was doing didn't cause a fire. The stove was old and it just caught fire. Mm -hmm. Um, but my cognitive function was not there. So I, I acted poorly. And what happened was I ended up picking up the pan to try to get it off the heat source. Mm -hmm. Um, because I couldn't turn, I couldn't turn anything off. I didn't know. And I was, I was, uh, house sitting my friend's sister's house. So we were house sitting for the weekend and we burnt her kitchen down. Wow. And, um, Anyway, so when I moved the pan off of the stove, it was much hotter than I anticipated. And I jerked my hand away, but still my hand was on the handle and the pan came at me and it got on my right arm from my elbow down and then fell down on my right leg um, below my knee, Mm. got all the front of my leg and onto my foot. And um, it was it was burning hot oil. It it caught fire and yeah, the fire got put out on my body. And so my skin fell off of my arm immediately. It was just hanging. Um, and I went into shock. Of course, my friend is freaking out and screaming, runs next door, calls 911. Um, the ambulance comes and gets me. They had no idea what to do with me. The burn units closed. It's a Saturday. And, um, the best they could do was wrap me up, give me a prescription, which they didn't even have at the hospital and send me home. Okay. Oh. Call this number on Monday and go to the burn center. <laughs> they put <What>? you <laughs> off through the weekend. For... Yeah. They put That's me crazy. off. Like, I don't think that's even possible to do anymore. They would like life light you at this point, but that's what happened. And, um, luckily my best friend, her mom has lupus. And so she had a cabinet full of drugs, <laughs> painkillers, because she's always in pain. And so I went straight to her house and she drugged me up for the next couple days so that I could get to the hospital to do a um, debriefing, really. they um, I don't know how much you know about burns, but they put you under and they take a wire brush to the affected area. A they literally brush. scrape your skin off of you with wire. Oh, wow. Amazing. And if you're under the age of 12, you can't have morphine. So you pass out from the pain. Luckily, I was over the age of 12. But when you walk into a burn unit, all you can hear is screaming children. It is the worst experience of my life. So they don't give. So, OK, so they can't have morphine. But why can't they have some other type of painkiller? I mean, geez, that seems like cruel know. and unusual torture. 
agree with you. And you know what? If I would have been um, of a different mindset, I probably would have asked more questions, but that's all I can remember. And it may be different now. You know, that was 20 years ago. And that's all I can remember is the kids screaming when I walked in and I would say, what is going on? What's happening? Are you trying to kill us in there? Like, what are you going to do to me? Yeah. And like, oh, well, you're you're over 12, so you're fine. What? Wow. So you get to die if you're under 12? Like, that's how I translated that. That's crazy. <laughs> of course, I was in a lot of pain still because I couldn't have any painkillers past a certain point, right? So I'm in pain waiting to get my morphine. Wow. So um, that's why that's why I can't remember every part of that. But that it that made an impression in my mind of, holy cow, this, I do not want to be doing this. Yeah, no, for sure. That's something you'd want to block out for the rest of your life. Absolutely. That's crazy right. though. I, right. I mean, burns are some of so, the worst injuries you can, you can have. Yeah. They said to me, you know, oh my gosh, you've been through so much. Having children will be easy for you. You have a really high pain tolerance, like all of these great things, right? La 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 la. Great in theory. Right. Great in theory. So I go home. They, they degrade my skin <laughs> and I go home and I have reaction after reaction to every prescription drug they give me. And I hallucinate, I break out in hives, I have headaches, I can't sleep, all of these different issues. So basically it was hard to drug me. So I was feeling a lot of the pain of my nerves coming back alive. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of reflection time. I think I passed out from the pain many times. So, um, it took me two months to rehabilitate in a chair. I had to learn how to use my fingers and my right arm again. Um, had to learn how to bend my foot and bend my knee and re relearn how to totally function and walk. I definitely walked funny and used my arm funny for a while. Wow. So it was that serious to where you literally had to have some, some reprogramming of your brain there. Mm -hmm. So they, the burn on my arm, I had never heard this before and I haven't heard anyone call it this since I probably should ask like professional, what's the actual term. But the thing that they kept telling me is this is double third degree burn. So basically I had, I, when my skin fell off, you know, you have many layers to your skin. Mm -hmm. It's not like, Oh, I burned off the first layer or second layer or third layer all of my skin. I was looking at muscle and bone and ligament and stuff in my arm when my skin fell off. So I had zero skin left on my arm. Oh my God. Yeah. So it is horrible. It was horrible. And so, and then my, my leg was second degree burn and my foot was first degree burn because it was just cooling on the way down. Wow. And so, um, I, I rehabbed for two months sitting in a recliner with some angels in my life. Um, my friend's mother and then a random stranger who came and lived with us, um, and asked for nothing in return, just was at my beck and call 24 seven for two months. Really? Another random stranger, but this one was a good one, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This was a very good random stranger, a woman named Melissa, and she graced my life and took care of me. That's fantastic. Fantastic. Amazing. So at the end of two months, um, I had a lot of influence during the two months, people talking to me or whatever. And I knew that I needed to not be in the situation that I was in when I got burned. I needed a different environment. I had this very best friend that I have known since I was eight and I love her dearly, but I needed 
I needed something different. I wanted to be near her, but I couldn't be around anyone else or anything else. And so I came to the only place I knew where to come because I had family that I could tolerate. Um, and that was Utah. My older sister had come to Utah and she had just recently married a couple months prior to my accident. And so she's like, come out here. I'll find you a place to live. We'll get you a job. Um, she had a fabulous job. She got me a job with the company that she worked for. Like, and she, you know, just set me up. So, um, as I start rehabbing and really thinking of what I want to do, I got, I started thinking about health again mm -hmm. and really wanting to be in that space. It didn't make sense for me at the time, but I started restudying. I see. I see. Yeah. And so that's, it's come like full circle. I feel like I've gone down all these outlets of journeys <laughs> to teach me elements of empathy <laughs> and knowledge that I needed to take into my practice. Um, but my own journey has definitely been the most impactful on how I actually help other people. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when you say full circle, that's kind of an understatement growing up you know, out in the woods eating, you know, I'm assuming from food that you grew a lot of times to getting mm -hmm. completely away from that, you know, experiencing the burn and, and that trauma and then coming back to health and wellness. And that's definitely the, the exact definition for sure. Mm -hmm. When you got definitely. to Utah, was, was life what you thought it would be? Did you kind of settle in there with the family that you had there or did you find it difficult to adjust? I found it extremely difficult to adjust. In fact, once I got here, I thought I just made the worst mistake of my life. Like, mm. how do I hit the undo button? I don't want to do this. <laughs> um, like I had said before, I did grow up Mormon in central Florida, but that was, I mean, I grew up in the Bible belt. I don't think many people think Florida is part of the Bible belt, but it definitely is. I mean, everybody I knew was Southern Baptist and they right. were always trying to me. And, um, I, I had no clue what that even meant. <laughs> like, why do you want to save me? What am I in danger? Right, right. Um, and that was like, that was really hard for me <laughs> to try to get through that point. But it was also, I could, in the end, I knew that they just loved me. They wanted what's best for me. So but when you move to Utah, it's the capital of Mormons, right? Mm -hmm. well, Mormons in Utah are nothing like Mormons in Florida or any other place, I think. It is a very different culture. And it's not a religion here. It's a culture. Right. And so even if you are not of that religion, you abide by the culture because that's just how it is. Like the local news is constantly talking about the Mormon church or what's happening and everything's referred to as the church. Right. It's like living next to the Vatican. Like <laughs> it's, it's a little crazy and everybody, um, let me preface this by, I, I like it here now. In the beginning, I felt like everyone was super fake, you know, like the movie Pleasantville or mm -hmm. Stepford Wives. Yeah. That's exactly what it was like. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. I'm just like, these people are robots. What is, what is up with these people? <laughs> um, plus I had a very, very thick Southern accent and no one could understand me. And that was super frustrating. <laughs> 
That's so there was just a number of things that, you know, there's a learning curve. You just, you got to adapt and, and start to mingle and learn how to, I, I learned how to camouflage for mm-hmm. a long time. <laughs> just to kind of hide in the crowd. Yeah. 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 So when exactly. you, when you moved there with your family, was, was your family like actively participating in the Mormon church and all that fun stuff? Or were you just kind of on the, you know, immersed in the culture, as you said? Um, yeah, my sister, um, she was the only person that I knew here, her and her husband. And yeah, they were, they were definitely living the religion. That was, that was part of who they are. Um, but I had, I had basically chosen not to live the religion. And so I was being immersed back into it. Mm-hmm. However, it was completely different from what I was used to. Right. And so it was so shocking to me that I, I think I was also being fake. I was, I was doing all the things, but I, I didn't want to be doing all the things. Gotcha. Yeah. So were you, did you find yourself kind of, you know, facing pressure to, you know, be more uh, Mormon like, I guess you'd say, or, you know, were you allowed to kind of live your own life at this point? Um, yes, both. Um, my sister in an effort to help me not make bad choices, I think, because remember I was drunk when I had my accident and I've just recovered. Um, she actually, the place that she chose for me to live was BYU housing, Brigham Young University, the church's college housing. So I was living inside of, I mean, every single person I could see for miles was LDS and abiding by religious rules. Right. So I was definitely feeling immense pressure to conform to the standard, which was, it's not like, oh, okay, I can do this. I've done it before. I had never really conformed to that standard because I didn't even realize that standard existed. Mm -hmm. And I was now being asked to do that. Like in Florida, um, well, in Utah, uh, wearing certain clothing is very important to the religion. Like your shorts have to come to your knees. You can't show your shoulders, nothing too low cut, nothing backless, nothing strapless, you know, like there's, there's all these things. And as a girl, it's hard because society as a whole determines fashion. And you're just like, well, what do I even wear? I'm going to look like a boy if I don't wear girl clothing. <laughs> I mean, that's what I felt like. Sure. Uh, but in Florida, we don't do that. We don't uphold that standard, so to speak, even a Mormon. Right. And so when I got here, it was just so foreign to me. I didn't even have clothes that were acceptable. Nothing I owned was acceptable. And so it was just like, huh, okay, I can do this. It's going to be okay. (laughs) That's funny, man. That's so funny. I mean, it's, you know, it's cool. Like, uh, you know, everyone has their religion or lack thereof, and everyone has their set of standards and values. And, you know, you can say what you want about any religion, Mormonism, you know, Southern Baptist, whatever, you know, but the mm-hmm. thing of it is, is like, do they live by the code that they put forth, you know, 
That's, mm-hmm. that's always my litmus test. And I find that the Mormons are some, you know, at least the ones in Utah, the ones closest to temple, right. Are the ones who are, you know, doing their best to kind of uphold the values and, and sort of the, the standards that are put forth. Whereas, you know, and you have to admire that because there's a certain amount of, you know, a discipline that goes into living that lifestyle. Whereas in other religions and other cultures, you know, you can kind of get away with doing your own thing and whatever the standards are, you just kind of morph them to fit your lifestyle. Right. <laughs> but not mm-hmm. in the Mormon church, at least not in, in the Salt Lake area in, in Utah, for sure. Well, I think the Mormon church is different in the judgment. So mm-hmm. there's always a price to pay for your choices, whether they be good or bad, right? Natural consequences. When the Mormon church, the consequences are much more severe and real when you step outside of the box that they want you to be in. Mm. In other religions, not world religions, but other Christian religions, such as Catholicism and Southern Baptists and Methodists, they have a loose set of rules that if you break the rules, it's like, ah, okay, you're fine. Like right. it's, it's not a big deal at all. Right. But in, in Mormonism, it's like, oh gosh, you better straighten up. We're going to have you in a straight jacket and you better be doing everything right. And we're going to have our eye on you. <laughs> I mean, it feels like you're under a magnifying glass and you get severely punished, not in like a physical way, but you get things taken away from you. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's different. For dang sure, it's different. Definitely. I remember, you know, my parents were Southern Baptists, so, you know, Christian, whatever. And I remember, you know, hanging out in the bars in college on, you know, on Saturday nights or whatever. The the preacher's daughter is like the drunkest one in the room, (laughs) you know. (laughs) You show up, Uh you know, your parents make you go to church for whatever reason. You show up and she's singing in the choir, you know. It's like, okay, what's going on here? You know, I don't don't understand what's going on here. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think you could get away with that in in the Mormon church at all? No, no. In fact, you, it's a tattletale system. In fact, like it's supposed to be the honor system, but because everyone lives so close knit, I mean, in normal churches, the way that happens is, I mean, you'll, you could drive miles to go to the church of your choice because you like a certain pastor or preacher, or you like the way they do things because they get to wear shorts to church or whatever. But in the Mormon church, you're, segmented into areas. If you live within this county, you know, in anywhere other than Utah, then you go to this certain building at a certain time. And in Utah, if it's, if you live within these three blocks, three city blocks, then this is your church and this is who you associate with. And these are your neighbors and it's all your neighbors. Mm -hmm. I mean, you go to church, school, and you share yards with all the same people. And so they are literally inside of your life. And so it's like having siblings and they run and tell mom and dad, if you did anything wrong. Mm-hmm. And that that's seriously how the religion feels is that you're just like, oh my gosh, I can't even be myself. I can't ever make a mistake because the judgment is too harsh. Right. right. And so it actually creates a problem. I feel like, because People are people. You're going to make a mistake no matter who you are. And you have to have grace. And I don't feel like there's enough grace here. Mm. It's the fear and the pressure. And that's why people keep doing what they're doing out of fear. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's uh, not definitely not a good way to, I think, go through the day if you're feeling anxious or fearful or, you know, just feeling like people are looking at you, mm-hmm. watching you, waiting for you to mess up. That's not a, mm-hmm. that can't be a healthy thing. And so how right. did you transition from that? I mean, like you obviously went into the situation, you know, I'm assuming you had to buy all new clothes, you know, and all the fun stuff around uh, fitting in and, and, you know, keeping up with the, uh, the Mormon Joneses, if you will. But, you know, at <laughs> some point, you know, you, you, I'm assuming that you, you, you started your fitness, uh, you got back into the fitness world when you arrived there. Yes. And then, <laughs> well, yeah, that, that's an interesting little journey as well. So I did, I did conform. I, um, met a man that I married within six months of moving to Utah and we got married two years later in the temple. Mormons get married in the temple in a, in a sacred, but, um, secure type secret, um, ceremony. And I did all of the things and I thought I was happy. And I thought I was living the way God wanted me to live. And I thought I was doing everything correctly. And um, what I quickly realized is that I, was, I did not marry my Prince Charming. Within, within a couple weeks, I was like, oh, man, marriage is super hard. Within the first year, I was like, can I really do this? Um, at the end of the second year... I, I was almost ready to jump ship because he was not the person that I thought he was or hoped he was. I mean, there were signs, but I was so young. I met him at 19, right? I just turned 19 and I got married at 21. I'm so young, so dumb. And, uh, by, the time I realized it's probably not the best situation for me, I was pregnant with my first baby. And so that changes you. And you're like, okay, well, we got to try and work it out now. Right. right. Um, that uh, it just, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and then of course I have another baby and it's still getting worse. And <laughs> I have another baby. <laughs> um, but along that way, So after my first child was born, he had a lot of issues. Um, What I thought were physical issues, they were probably energetic manifestations, but um, he had thrush and um, uh, colicky kind of, not severe, but kind of colicky. Mm -hmm. He had an upset stomach, of course, that goes with colic and... um, he had eczema really bad. He had some sort of like indigestion or something going on. I couldn't ever lay him down, um, completely flat. Like he couldn't lay down in his bed. He had to sleep sitting up. Um, and so I took him to doctors and they wanted to give him creams for his eczema and medicine, antibiotics, all sorts of things for, his issues. And yes, sometimes you just need medicine to get over. I believe that Western medicine is here for a reason. However, he was just months old and I was like, he's brand new. He's supposed to be perfect. This should not be a thing. And so 
what I figured out in my research is it all comes back to me, right? And this comes back to me figuring out, oh, this is how I inherited everything from my mom. All the light bulbs started going off. Mm-hmm. I have all my issues because my mom suffered this during pregnancy and I just did the same thing to my child. So in the research, I figured out, oh, well, I'm breastfeeding, which is best for your kid. But if you're eating crap and not taking care of your body mentally, emotionally, and physically, you are not giving your baby what your baby needs. And so when I started to change my diet, he stopped having issues. I could lay him down flat and he would sleep and he didn't have colic anymore and his skin cleared up. And so that, I moved that into when I started feeding him, you know, real food. And I just made sure that he was eating a different kind of diet. I completely changed back to the person I wanted to be. And that that's, I call my period of life where I was like a freshman in college. Cause those are the years that you eat spaghetti and ramen noodles. Like, right. like there's nothing else on the planet to eat. Right. We right. all remember that stage of life. Of <laughs> you're so broke. You're so busy. You're so tired. You don't know what else to do. That's right. <laughs> so, um, I finally came out of that. Unfortunately, I was just, I, I was pregnant during the last tail end of that because my husband and I were starting a business and we had put every penny we had and were making into building that business. And so we we're literally broke. We had zero money in our bank account. So, um, I finally said, I don't care. I, I don't care. I'll put it on a credit card. I'll do whatever. And luckily we had just started to make some money after the baby was born. And I, I cleaned out my kitchen one day. I took, I unplugged the microwave. I took it off the shelf and I put it in the big garbage can outside. I threw away all my pots and pans. I threw away my silverware. I threw away everything in the cupboards, in the pantry. Every single thing went in the garbage and I started over. Really? Wow. So it was a little drastic and dramatic, but it's sometimes you just need a fresh start. And I realize I, I can't just get my toes wet. I've got to like leap off this cliff because I know this is the answer. Right. And that was another turning point in my journey, which also has been a turning point of learning and empathy for my clients. Mm-hmm. So I, I know what it's like to feel like, well, I'm not doing anything super bad. It's not like I was being the worst person. It's just, no, there were some things that I were doing that really didn't align with mostly my DNA. I was eating things that my body couldn't handle. Right. And my baby was also getting those things. So changing how I saw what I was eating, my diet, and and then and then actually physically changing it was very key for my journey. I see. So it was this this experience that you had with your child not tolerating what you were doing to yourself that sort of opened your eyes, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gave me a whole new look into what we do as parents, how we teach them, how we feed them. We shape who they are. We shape what their guts are like. That's right. We inherit our mother's microbiome. So when I was pregnant, I was eating out of a vending machine. I was working 12-hour days, getting up at 4 a.m. Like it, it was crazy. And so I was just in survival mode as I was pregnant when I'm supposed to be like nourishing my body and using it as this preparatory place for this baby to be growing inside of me. 
I was not doing that at all. I did not give him the soft landing that he needed to actually come into this world. Right. And so I had to recreate that. Yeah. Wow. It's a lot. And yeah, it's a lot to take in when you start realizing how much of a role that you play in shaping another human being. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. So all yeah. these experiences are, you know, leading you to where you are today, you know, and, and we talked at the top of the hour about some of the titles that you carry around the health world, the functional coach, um, real mm-hmm. love coach. I'm wondering if you can sort of take us down the path to where you are now in your practice. How do some of these uh, experiences, how have they sort of created the, the practice or the, or the person that's running this practice today? What sorts of people um, are you working with? What sorts of problems are you solving in the world today? Honestly, my clientele has become who I am, right? Your avatar is usually who you are or who you have been because you attract alike. And so my clientele has always been very similar to where I am in my process. Um, just a couple steps back. So Mm -hmm. one of my favorite clients who has, I've just transitioned her to becoming my assistant actually, because I love her so much and she, she knows my process and it works out perfectly. Um, she has been with me for several years and she was in a place of society norms. Society has told her she is this. They've put labels on her. And the doctors have given her medication with those labels. And other people have told her what she is or who she is. And she's listened to them because she hasn't loved herself, because she hasn't known how to love herself enough to speak her own truth. Mm. And so I really, really love helping men and women, but I seem to attract a a large array of women um, that want help becoming who they know they should be. They know they have a purpose here in this life, on this earth. They know they have their own journey, but they don't feel like they're on their journey. They feel like they've plateaued and they're sitting. Um, there's a lot of women that come to me in transition. They have already had their children, pretty much raised their children. Their youngest children are maybe in high school or late junior high, and they don't have a lot to do. But in Utah, the standard is all moms stay at home. Right. We don't, So therefore, we've gone years and years and years without a quote unquote job, and we don't know what to do. (laughs) Our children are no longer needing us every minute of the day, but we are at a loss of how to fill our time. And our time gets filled with meaningless tasks Mm. that do, I mean, I don't even want to go into it, but I'm like, are you serious that you fill your day with that? Okay. All right. Um, to each his own <laughs> soap operas and bonbons um, or, or what are you talking here? <laughs> there is, there's a wide array. People make up jobs for themselves, wow. you know, like they want to fill their time in Utah in general. This is not every single mom, but, um, that there seems to be this, well, I'm a mom. Okay. Are you contributing to society? Because your kids aren't that great. So <laughs> that's not your contribution. <laughs> you know, like, I don't want to lead with that, I, right? <laughs> no, no, probably not. And yeah. I don't say that, but 
that's my overall feeling is you think your contribution to society is what? I think we all should be contributing. I right. think we all should be doing something. And I don't care what it is. I'm not saying everybody needs to go get a nine to five job. I think everybody needs to have a purpose. Right. And sitting at home doing laundry and dishes while your kids are at school is not a purpose. So how do you guide people through, you know, the person who's sitting at home They're, you know, they're, they're not moving in any direction forward or backward. They're just kind of lukewarm sitting there. How do you take them uh, from that stationary place into that place where they can start to derive that purpose and start to wake up to what's possible for them? For those particular people, you don't have to dig very far to find out they're not happy in these choices that they're making because honestly, they feel like they've made that choice because they're pressured to make that choice. Well, I have to stay at home. That's Mm -hmm. what we do. Well, why do you do that? Because someone told you to, because it's expected of you. If your husband makes enough money where you don't need to go to work, why don't you give yourself a different purpose? If you don't want a nine to five job, that's completely fine. I haven't had a nine to five job in 15 years and I think it's glorious, but service is a job. Service makes you a better person service gives you a purpose. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be endless amounts of service where you lose yourself and, you know, you become an old crony in that position. It's just step outside yourself. And when I talk to these women, they want, they want to do things. Think about it. A mom that stays at home has done nothing but be of service. They're pretty much a slave. And so they, they know how to do this kind of job. In service, you don't typically get paid, right? A mm. mom, you don't get paid to be a mom. Right. So they're, they're used to the aspects of that. And so I really try to push women who don't want a job that they actually earn money and that they go and start a foundation if you want. Start something if you want to be the head of it or go work with someone that is performing some sort of service act. Step outside yourself because it's seriously what they're already doing and they love the idea. It's just a matter of holding their hand to get them to the next place on their journey. They really get stuck. It's like they fell into quicksand. They're playing the game of Candyland. They're in a mud pie Mm -hmm. and they don't know how to get out of it. I got you. I got you. So it sounds like, um, you know, you're not, you're not, when you say purpose, you're not asking someone to sit down and, you know, write a treatise on how they're going to save the world. You're asking someone just to, mm-hmm. to get plugged in, right? Like do anything, mm-hmm. you know, like do anything that's going to be of service to your community or the people around you or, you know, find a way to have an impact sort of a thing. Right. This is not your opus, right? You're not going to go down in the history books for doing this. Probably you could, who knows right. what it turns into, but that's not what I'm saying. You're right. I am saying just take that baby step, get those toes wet in the water and understand that there's more to life than these four walls and slaving for these people that say, I love you, but really aren't that appreciative and are pretty much adults themselves. They can do this all for themselves. Sure. So it's <laughs> and all, they should be. Cause. Yes. Yes. 
So it's not, it sounds like there's a process where you're taking people through just sort of stripping away all the BS, right? And then coming back mm-hmm. down to who they are at their essence. And, you know, mm-hmm. what is it that th- they as an individual would enjoy doing, you know? And is that the part of your practice that you are coming to from that place of the quote unquote real love coach? Correct. Yeah, that is exactly where I'm coming from. I love the aspect of real love because it's so multidimensional. Real love is um, a termed a term that's coined by Greg Bear, and he wrote several different books with the title of Real Love. There's Real Love, regular Real Love, Real Love in Marriage, Real Love in Dating, Real Love with Teenagers, real, and um, the overall message of Real Love is no control. Right, you're not controlling others; you're controlling yourself, and no addictions to vices. And when I say vices, it's, are you addicted to safety? Do you look for safety in others? Mm. Do you look for love in others? Are you, are you marrying this person because you expect them to love you? And that's, that's how you're going to feel love is if they love you, right? right? You're looking outward for the things that you can't control within yourself. I see. Um, I see. So that when I say real love, we're going back to that is you need to always look inward for those purposes. Mm. Stop looking outward to anyone. I know a lot of people will say, well, we are meant to be with others. We're meant to have a spouse of sorts or um, we're meant to have children. We're la, 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 la. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> My God, my belief is not that we have to conform to one way. You can make your own path. You can do your own thing, but you need to figure out what that is for you. Right. And in doing that, a big part of that, maybe the biggest part of it is learning how to love yourself Mm -hmm. and to be okay with you. If you didn't have anyone else, would you just sit there wanting someone else? If you are, you need to look inward and go, wow, am I the person that they want? How can you find someone to be that significant other when you're not that someone? Right, right. That's like, don't look for someone to complete you, right? Like find out what's broken mm-hmm. or what's missing or not, not even broken or missing, but what's what you've maybe mislabeled or forgotten about yourself and invest mm-hmm. in that place so that you're not dependent on someone else. That's what I'm hearing. Exactly. You should always be completing yourself. If you ever need someone else to complete you, that's a problem. The only thing that you need completion with is if you want children, you usually need another person to do that. Even if you don't do it the conventional way, you need another person to do that. <laughs> right. You need a little help one way or another. So Exactly. So how would you define, you know, after after talking about some of the people that you work with and some of um, and, and little bits and pieces of your practice, how would you define the word love overall? Like, what does it mean to you? Um, love to me is a complete understanding and not having control or not controlling. Um, love to me, like when it comes to my children, as a parent, it's really hard to not want to tell them what to do every step of the way, right? Because we see it as we are stewards of these children. We're put in charge of these children. They came out of us and we have this role in their life 
to tell them what to do and how to do it. <laughs> That's right. not true. And it's really hard, especially when we were raised that way as do as I say, not as I do and shut up. Your job is to listen, <laughs> not talk kind of thing. Sure. And I think that that has been going on for generations and generations. And we are now the product of that. And love comes in different forms. We love people different ways. But when you can look at someone and feel complete joy in their presence, not because of who they are, not because of what they do, but just mm. because they are part of your life. Mm. Wow. That is love. That's beautiful. I have never heard it defined that way. So thank you for, for sharing your perspective. Oh, is welcome. this uh, related to what you also do in terms of working with people on the functional and the health side? Do you kind of marry all of these concepts when you're working with people? Yes, I do marry all of these concepts. So I do call myself a gutologist and that's my coined my coined phrase <laughs> that I made up just looking for a term for studying the gut. There isn't a real name or degree for what I feel like I've done for 20 years and really understanding the gut and then how the gut and the brain play off of each other. They work in tandem. And so, I'm sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off as you say, Hey, could you just no, elaborate no, on a little bit? I think that's point. what you're going to do. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead and ask your question. That was a good stopping point. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I was wondering if you could just elaborate on a little bit more on the science behind that. There's, there's some science coming out saying that, you know, we have more than one brain, right? Like our digestive system right. carries as many neurons as other parts of the thinking body, so to speak. So I'm curious exactly. what your take on that is. Yeah, no, I am definitely in line with that science. Um, yeah, it's been available for a while. It just hasn't been mainstream that our gut is actually our second brain. Mm -hmm. We have so many nerve endings, so many um, microbes going on. I mean, there's an entire ecosystem going on in our gut. And that's essentially what we call our microbiome, even though our microbiome kind of covers our entire body. Our microbiome is, you know, the bacteria on our skin and on the outside of our skin, as well as on the inside. Mm -hmm. So, um, knowing that the gut and the brain work in tandem, I think is key for understanding health for years now. And now it's finally becoming mainstream. I mean, this is what I'm talking about that I was learning 15 years ago, 14 years ago, when I was researching to try and help my baby. These are the things that I was uncovering and no one was talking about it. And I'm like, holy cow, why, why? Right. <laughs> and um, now it's becoming mainstream, which I'm so happy about finally, but the understanding that the gut and the brain work together and the way I describe it to clients is, you know, have you ever seen somebody that just makes you sick? And you literally, I mean, you've heard this saying that person makes me sick. <clears throat> you, you have this visceral reaction. Your brain is thinking that, but also your gut actually triggers your elimination system as if you were sick. You could literally make yourself throw up or pee in your pants or even, you know, poop in your pants or whatever. Like, your brain is so strong, but I'm not just talking about the brain that's in your skull. I'm talking about the brain that's in your gut. Mm -hmm. And the gut brain is listening 
to the first brain that's in your head. And I would even venture to say that your gut brain is your first brain, even though that, I mean, there are people that agree with me because you usually feel something before you know something. Mm, and our true. brain in our head is the knowing and the gut brain is our feeling. And so when you really look at it from that perspective, you're like, well, of course they're connected. How could they not be connected? Right? Yeah. Everything we do, when you look at the gut as a whole and you know that um, our immune system is pretty much made in our gut, serotonin, which puts us into a sleep-like state made in our gut, all the good bacteria that we need for our body made in the gut. Like <laughs> you need all of these things that are happening and our gut is doing all of it, mm-hmm. all of it. Right. It's, while it's processing all of the garbage we're putting down our throat. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it is so multifunctional and we take it for granted and we, and we feed it crap and we treat it like crap and we have massive amounts of disease and autoimmune issues because of the way that we treat it. Mm-hmm. We don't think about it fully. And the more we uncover it with science and the more it gets into mainstream media, I'm loving it because people are actually realizing, oh, okay, yeah, there is something to this. And I don't sound so off kilter anymore to people. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a good feeling. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're so right. I mean, we just... I mean, as you know, the Western diet, of course, is just garbage. And of course, that's the majority of what people consume. And, you know, you're talking about a delicate, delicate thing. Your, your, your intestinal wall is what, like one cell thick or something like that. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's just incredibly sensitive to what we do to it. And I think that it's amazing <clears throat> that it has been so back burner like information you know, this long in, in the, in the knowing of what it, of, of its contribution to our, to our overall health. And it's amazing that we have people like you bringing it to the forefront and, and others as well, of course. So, mm-hmm. you know, we've talked a little bit about the, the development, like the, the mindset piece, if you will, the, the self image piece, we've talked a little bit about the gutology, if you will, mm-hmm. of the situation. Mm-hmm. What role does movement play in your practice, if at all? Movement plays a big part, but for me, the way that I coach clients is I have them start with breathing. Mm. We always start with breathing because I see it as hierarchy. Think about all the things that you do in life, right? That keep you alive. Well, you need to eat and you need to drink, right? But you can go days without doing either one of those things. Sure. You need to sleep. But again, you can go days without it. If you stop breathing, you're dead. That's the one thing that it's like you have to know correctly. And 85% of people on the planet are breathing incorrectly. I should say 85% of adults on the planet are breathing incorrectly because children are born knowing how to breathe for the most part. There are some some factors that come into play if they have issues. Um, But we breathe diaphragmatically when we're born, right? You can watch, if you watch a dog or a cat sleep, you watch them on their side and their belly rises as they inhale and it falls as it exhales. A baby is the exact same way. You can watch a baby do that as they're sleeping or even as they're sitting there. As we grow and develop peer pressure and society set in, we start holding our breath for fear or because we need to look skinny we need to fit into jeans. 
we need to be silent. There's a whole host of reasons why we start integrating the opposite pattern of breathing that we do. But what the important part is, is getting back to the proper way of breathing because oxygen is such a huge part of our brain and our body. Without oxygen, our muscles don't develop, they don't recover, they um, can't form properly. Without oxygen, our visceral system, our actual organs are shutting down. Our brain is very foggy. We are not getting enough air, basically. I mean, that's the simplest way to put it. We're not getting enough air. And if you think about society right now, we all have a smartphone in our pocket. My 10-year-old has a smartphone in her pocket. And if she were to sit there all day on her smartphone playing a game or texting or whatever, you can watch people that do that and their shoulders start to come forward. The lower part of their back rounds, the part that should be moving inward, right? We have C curves kind of to our spine. Our back rounds in the opposite direction. We start to have kind of this hump on our back and our shoulders are falling forward, not just forward, but collapsing together. And this inhibits lung function and this also inhibits our diaphragm from working properly. Mm -hmm. The problem there is that we haven't been using our diaphragm diaphragm properly for years because we've been holding our breath trying to be in our skinny jeans that's right yeah for sure i think it's, it's interesting <laughs> so, that you bring that up you know like uh I, I think a lot of people don't realize how large your lungs are you know like they don't realize mm -hmm. that it actually tucks up under your collarbone and goes all the way down mm -hmm. below your mm -hmm. your last floating rib and when you have that posture like you're saying there's no way you can inflate that right exactly but the i don't think many people know some some singers know this because you have to kind of sing from your diaphragm, but it's amazing that you don't even learn this. I've, I've coached several um, singers that get paid to sing. So it's like they know how to do this, but they never learned how to breathe properly unless they're singing. Mm. So they're only doing it right if they're performing. <laughs> I'm like, right. oh my gosh, that's not a large part of your life. I mean, it's what you do for a job, but you need to be doing this in all areas of your life. Right. So really, you know, moving those shoulders back and teaching people how to reuse their diaphragm, which is a muscle. So it has to be trained. It's not like, oh, okay, well, I know how to do it now and that's going to work perfectly. No, you have to train it just like you would any other muscle. So that means you have to do 10,000 engrams to get it to do its thing. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I love so that you, that's... I love that you, I love that you framed it that way because <laughs> it does require <laughs> practice, right? And I'm going to play this podcast for yeah. my people every time I'm coaching a class now, because at the end of class, I take people through a cool down. Right. And, um, uh -huh. I always tell them to breathe from their belly. That's like, and, and my uh -huh. phraseology is always like, remember, this is not an Instagram photo. Breathe from your belly, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so now I've got you backing me up. So I appreciate that. I love that. I love that you say it's not an Instagram photo. Stop holding your breath. Who cares if your belly pooches out a little <laughs> bit? Like, whatever. Like, stop. That's right. Um, one of my favorite ways to teach someone to breathe is to lay them on their stomach and to force them. I mean, I can't force anyone, but I'm teaching them and telling them, okay, as you inhale, your belly is going to blow your body up as if you had like a balloon under you popping you up, right? Um, and that way they can actually really feel it. And it actually really exercises as if you had, um, 
time under tension, right? Like you mm -hmm. are, if you were building your muscle, right. And you're weightlifting, you want to put max amount of weight on there and then lift. You're going to do the same thing. You're using your body weight as the pressure on your diaphragm and you are going to lift your body off the floor by inhaling. Oh. So that's a great one. Use that one. Absolutely. I, I appreciate that. I'll definitely use that. I, um, I, I realize I'm keeping you a little longer than I promised. We're coming up on the, the two hour mark and there's so much more of your story I want to dive into. So maybe we can do a part two if you'd be up for that. Um, I love, would love a part two. Awesome. I'd love to hear about the relationship piece and more about your practice as well. <clears throat> but um, going into, you know, coming up, bumping up against our, our time limit here, I was wondering if you could uh, transition and tell me at this point, you know, with your business and your practice, you know, what does success look like for you in your life, whether it's, you know, financial with your relationships, with your children, whatever it looks like for you. Success for me is maybe a little different. I have a lot of goals and aspirations. And if you were sitting in this room that I'm sitting in right now, it's actually my bedroom. At the beginning of the year, I actually wrote down, you know, those huge pads of paper that they've turned into sticky notes. They're post-it notes, but they're poster sized. Yes. I have pads of those. Like I love writing on those <laughs> and I literally have those posted all over my room and they are chock full of my goals and aspirations and the mantras and, and uh, manifestations that I have for myself. So I have very high expectations of myself for success, but the way that I actually define success is how happy am I? Because I could be broke as broke, living on a deserted island, drinking coconut water every day. And to me, that sounds like pure happiness, right? I'm by the ocean. And that would sound like success to me in, in one instance, right? Sure. But it really is defined by happy. How happy are you? And what does that look like to you? What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to sacrifice? And where are you willing to live and choose happiness? It's not like, oh, I arrived at happy. That's not what happens. Happiness is a choice. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I have chosen with all of these goals and aspirations to be happy along this journey. And success is every part of the journey. We celebrate every little milestone and every step that we take right? I have little goals. I have medium goals and I have gargantuan goals, but to be able to celebrate and go, you know what, even if I never got to that level, I'm still happy because I'm moving forward. Right. So right. I guess in simple terms, if you wanted it in one sentence, choosing happiness while moving forward is success. Oh, I love that. That's, that's funny. I released a podcast this morning uh, with a gentleman named Dave and his whole thing is about happiness. And he had a very similar sort of value system in which that was his ultimate, you know, it's a, he wants to go through life and live a happy life and be joyful and around people who experience awesome. life in that way, which of course rubs off on him. So I appreciate both of you guys reiterating the importance of that. So for anyone who's interested in touching base with you or learning more about your practice or how um, you can help them, what is the best way for them to reach out to you? How can they get in touch with you? So just going to rachelelnani.com. It's R-A-C-H-E-L-E-L-L-E-N-A-N-I. On that page is 
everything that I do. I have transitioned over the last six months to move my practice online. And so that page is changing almost every single day as we're trying to add as much content as possible. I have different programs on there. One of my most popular programs is the internal selfie challenge, which if you just want to check that out, you can just go to internal selfie challenge.com and selfie is like, I'm taking a selfie kind of spelling. And that is a 21 day challenge that allows you to really take an in-depth look at your habits and patterns that are happening right now in your life so that you can facilitate change to move, move you towards your goals. Mm, beautiful. Beautiful. Other than that, I move into group coaching and then one-on-one coaching. And I have all these other little tidbits like coach in a pocket that I'm developing right now. Um, and just, we're just growing every day. And my team is constantly, constantly moving forward. So yeah, that's how you get a hold of me. Fantastic. I'll get all that stuff linked up in the show notes so that you guys don't have to write any of it down. You can just click on it and go check it out. And, uh, my last question is always the same. And that's simply this, what does wellness look like to you? Wellness to me is how I feel about myself. And I think a lot of that transitions into success as well. So it almost feels like the same question for me is wellness is how do I feel every day? Mm. Do I wake up angry at the world that (laughs) it's Monday or, or whatever, or I have to deal with this problem or this issue, or I have to face another uh, trial or my kid needs this or I need that wellness is understanding our body and our mind and our soul and being happy with where we're at. Mm. Wow. I appreciate that answer. Thank you so much. Rachel Elnani, thank you for being here today. I really enjoyed getting to know you and hear at least some of your story. I hope we can do a part two and dive a little deeper into some of these concepts now that we uh, know, love, and trust one another. And um, yeah, yeah. so for all of you guys interested in what Rachel's doing, be sure and reach out to her. Uh, Check her out. She's on social media. Obviously, check out her website. We'll get everything linked up in the show notes. And on behalf of Rachel and myself, we'll see you guys in the next episode. Take care.
That's going to do it for this episode of Hardwater Radio, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys. And if you're vibing on this content, be sure and help us grow the tribe by liking, sharing, subscribing. And by all means, leave us a comment on your favorite podcatcher. Let us know what you like, what you dislike. And if you are someone out there who would like to tell your story, we are a collector of stories here. Shoot me a message, jason at hardwater.com or pick me up on social media. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever works for you. And I'd love to have that conversation with you guys. Until then, this is Jason Archer signing off, reminding you to remember your future.